who hears our prayer. And you hear one prayer from all who come to your throne, even the heart that is crying to you for the first time. When it cries to you in confession and repentance and seeks your grace in Christ, you hear. You hear the prayers of your people who are always coming to you and realizing their need of grace and that cleansing and restoration that comes through the ongoing work of forgiveness evident in our life. And this approach to you is so clearly given to us by your mercy, even in your word, in the life of David in Psalm 51. So as we finish our look at this passage this morning, would you teach us to be deeper and more faithful and consistent repenters? Will you hold before us these principles so that we walk before you in the light of truth and deal honestly with you and as we seek to be people who walk with integrity and faith until we reach our eternal home and how we long to be in that eternal home where the psalm will be needed no more. There will be no more repentance and confession because we will be without sin, no longer the indwelling sin that plagues us so much now. Uh, no longer will that be with us, but we will be like Christ in redeemed and glorified bodies. And we long for that day. But until then, we press on by your grace. And again, we ask that you would teach us this morning uh, through this psalm. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles again to Psalm 51. We began looking at this uh, last week. We got to verse 6. We'll pick it up again uh, this morning. And this is entitled An Anatomy of Repentance. It's a, a look at what a repentant heart uh, looks like. What is the model of repentance in the life of God's children? And I noted last week that we sometimes confuse as the church of God confession with repentance. We will go before the Lord and we will say that after we have been broken of our sin, acknowledged all of it in detail to the Lord, that we have repented. But in fact, that's not yet repentance. That's a part of repentance. But repentance is when we move from confession to actually make changes in our life. Repentance is at its very heart turning from one thing into another. And so in Christian repentance, it is turning from sin and a love for sin, more particularly to Christ. And again, to a love of God in Christ and to obey his commandments. Repentance is not merely the beginning of salvation. It is the very mark of salvation. All of you, if you know Christ, are repenters. As a matter of fact, it's interesting. I heard a story of the Russian church, a uh, pastor who used to go there often. He would say that they would identify themselves. If you asked uh, if you're a Christian, they would say, we are repenters. We have repented. That's how they thought of themselves as repenters. They realized that that was the mark of their life, what gave, them evidence, gave evidence of them belonging to Christ. And so that's true of all of us. And it is what manifests a heart that is alive to God and alive to righteousness and alive to truth. Let me read Psalm 51 again, and then we'll review what we covered last week and press on to the end. Psalm 51, verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me against you. And you only I have sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak, and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part. You will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, and let the bones which you have broken rejoice. And hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy 
of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. And then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O my God, the God of my salvation. And then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken spirit and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. And then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering, in whole burnt offering. And then young bulls will be offered on your altar. I think maybe one reason that repentance is lacking in the way in the church's profession, and I mean that in large, lacking as a central tenet of the Christian life and even the gospel in terms of its primacy is because there is such a low view of the reality of sin and of the doctrine of sin. It's almost like we don't want to offend anybody by talking about sin. But if someone is truly a believer and has come to faith in Christ, we know that Christ is above everything else and, in, and before anything else a savior from our sin. He is so much more. But he is that at the very heart of his mission. That is what John the Baptist claimed, is that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But a believer knows that, not only in believing in Christ for the first time, because we live with ourselves. And living with ourselves is to live with our sin, is to live with the reality all the time that we fail to measure up to all that we should be in Christ and to all that God commands us. We sin sometimes... Out of ignorance, we sin sometimes high-handedly, knowing very well we're sinning. We sin sometimes once and turn and never to do it again, and we sin sometimes repeatedly. We have moments of and periods of obedience, and then we have periods where we seem to wrestle with our flesh more than others. But at the heart of all of that, or the reality of all of that, is that for the Christian then, the reality of sin means that they know the reality of constantly what it means to turn from sin, to be broken, to go to the Lord in confession. And so David reflects that here. He is, as was noted, responding to a particularly egregious sin. It's at the very introduction to the gospel. It was his sin that was such a public sin when he was confronted with it, the sin of adultery with Bathsheba, and then the sin of the murder of her husband, Uriah, to cover up his previous sin. Once confronted, once exposed by the prophet of God, Nathan, he confessed it, he turned, and gives to us then a model of what it means to be a repenter. Now we noted last week then, the beginning of repentance, five, five uh, necessary realities of true repentance. Five necessary realities of true repentance. And the first is then found in the opening verses, verses 1 through 2, and it is this, that the repenter, when we come to God in true repentance, it is grounded in knowing God's character and God's covenant. Knowing God's character and God's covenant. This is the language of covenant, which the covenant itself is a reflection of God's own eternal character of extending loving kindness and grace and compassion. He says, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. The whole context of David's prayer was to know that the God who entered into covenant with his people Israel was a forgiving God, was a gracious God. The entirety of the life of God's people is one built on grace. And so David knew that. David knew that he only ever entered into God's presence on the foundation of grace because of his sin. The whole, the whole sacrificial system, the whole temple system and the tabernacle and the temple, later the temple. And the whole tabernacle and the priesthood and all of that was a reminder that God is holy. That man cannot approach his holiness and fellowship without there being an atonement for sin, a sacrifice for sin. That was a continual reminder in the life of the individual and in the nation as a whole. But the glory is, is that God had provided that sacrifice. 
He had provided a way for sin to be atoned for. He provided a way for fellowship to be maintained. And that was a constant reminder, yes, of the holiness of God, yes, of the separation that sin brings, yes, of the consequence of sin is death, but that God has graciously provided a way for his people on whom he set his love to enter into his presence. And so David knew that God, he stood in relation to God on the basis alone of his grace, and he appeals to that grace in this moment of feeling the depths of his sin. And behind that grace is the loving kindness of God and his compassion. His compassion. God is compassionate towards the weak. He's compassionate toward the sinner. He deals with incredible patience and loving kindness and mercy. And when we come to God, we must know that that is the God to whom we are coming to. We are coming to God who is ready to show grace and mercy. And that then invites us into his presence. And what that does is sometimes it corrects that wrong thinking of that I have to somehow amend my life enough before I can come to God. I somehow have to be righteous enough before I come to God. But every time we come in the presence of God, we come as one who is thoroughly sinful. And we come as one who knows our guilt, that we never have a right, even as a believer in Christ united to him. Spurgeon said this great statement in a sermon uh, I never come before God without bringing Christ with me. And if you're a believer, you know what that means. You never come to the presence of God based on your own right to come to the presence of God. You come to the presence of God based only on the right that he has granted in Christ, covered in Christ, his righteousness. And David didn't have the fullness of that, but he knew that he entered God's presence based on the promise of God, the mercies of God, and that's the essence of faith. As a matter of fact, Hebrews eleven six 6 says this, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And so the very first part, at the very heart of repentance, is to know that God extends his loving kindness to all who come to him wanting forgiveness, wanting cleansing, wanting to be made new, wanting to actually be free from the bondage that sin has brought them into. He is a covenant-keeping God. He is a gracious God. He is a compassionate God. And we come to him with that. He is not unwilling to forgive. He is always willing to forgive the sinner. We notice, secondly, in verses 3 through 6, that then when we come to God as a sinner, as one needing redemption, the essential part of repentance is to know that God will forgive, but also that he will forgive the one who truly owns his own sin. And it is this, the second uh, necessary reality is we must fully confess and own our personal guilt before God. We can't call sin something other than it is. We don't come to God with mistakes. We don't come, the gospel doesn't forgive mistakes. We don't come to God with disease or illness or addictions, as it were. We don't come to God with anything like that. We come to God when we sin with a full acknowledgement of our sin. We call it what God does. Look at the language that he uses here again. I've sinned. I've transgressed. I've done what is evil. I have broken your law. I have had corrupted motives. I had high-handed sin. We call sin what it is. When we come to God's presence in true repentance, we hide nothing. We sugarcoat nothing. We lessen nothing about what we have actually done. We confess not only our deeds, but we confess our motives. We confess our intentions. We confess our unbelief behind that deed. In every part, we come to God in full acknowledgement of our guilt and our sin. And here's the glory of that. It's extremely humbling because it brings us to our proper place, it brings us very low before God. But that is the place where God meets us with grace and meets us with forgiveness. And again, one of the, one of the, the sad realities of redefining sin, as so many are wont to do, is that it takes away the true blessing of forgiveness and grace. Because it's only in the acknowledgement of our sin that we can know the fullness and the wonder of this compassion and this loving kindness and freedom from it and cleansing. 
And just as a side note here and reflective of this, that's why when we go to one another, we need to call our sin, sin. And so often we, we go through this process, uh, oftentimes, and we just say, oh, I'm sorry about that, or I'm, I'm sorry about this thing or that. And what we need to do is say, no, I sinned against you. I spoke unkindly. I was loving myself in that moment and acted proudly. Will you forgive me? We need to confess our sin as well to one another specifically and as sin. But here David is before the presence of God owning fully his guilt. He calls sin, sin, and he owns it completely. He says in verse 4, so that you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. And as we noted just quickly, that a key aspect of repentance is when we accept fully the consequences of our sin. We accept fully the consequences of our sin. If we confess our sin and then complain and grumble about the consequence of our sin, it merely shows that our heart's never been humbled yet. When we confess it, we own it, and we own whatever consequences God deems, come, deems that should come from it. He's so often merciful, but there is no complaint. We own it as what is right, what is just, what is good. And even if God would have us bear consequences that uniquely humble us, we can thank him that it helps us to teach us to walk in the way of righteousness. And we say, God, whatever you need to do to keep me from sinning again. Now let's note thirdly here that when we come in repentance, we know God's character and his covenant. We come with the confidence of his forgiveness and his compassion. We fully confess and own our personal guilt. We call sin what it is and accept its consequences. And we plead, thirdly, for comprehensive restoration. Comprehensive restoration, verse 7. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit. Don't cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. But restore to me the joy of salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Notice here, as it's already been evident in David's prayer, that the pleas are not focused on or flowing merely from external concerns. What is the burden of the repentant heart is the internal corruption that sin brings. The pollution of conscience, the pollution of heart, the pollution of our affections, the corruption of it. And so when we're really repentant, we want merely not the consequences of sin to go away, but there is a desire to be cleansed from the very presence and the very love of that sin that we had fallen to. It's a complete cleansing of the heart. Notice as well, he wanted cleansing from his sin, again, not the consequences of it. He wanted to be free from the pollution of evil. And this really is, is an important note here, the distinction between true and false repentance. You can get very close to this, some can, and not ever really get to this point. I'm just going to mention this passage to you that you're familiar with it, but let me, let me put it in this context. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul addressing the Corinthian church and their own response to his rebuke and their sin. He says this to them, I caused you sorrow by my letter. I do not regret it. I did regret it because he didn't bring, want to bring the pain. But he says, but I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a little while. He says, but now I rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to God. So that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to God produces a repentance without regret to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So there, there's different kinds of sorrow and there's different kinds of regret that we can bring to the Lord. We can come to the Lord because we're sorry and we're so unhappy because of our sin. We're sorry that... It brought to us a consequence that we missed out on something that our heart really desired. We can be sorry about the shame that it brought to us. We can be sorry about what it might indicate about the reality of our hearts. 
and you can feel guilty and anxious and ashamed and all of those things and come to God and say, God, I want you to take away my shame. I want you to take away my anxiety. God, I want you to take away the consequences and still be merciful to me. But that's not the kind of repentance that David is addressing. That's a kind of repentance that is, as to use Paul's language, is of the world. It's of the world. Judas had that kind of repentance. He went into the temple, of course, and he said, I've sinned against God. He confessed that he sinned. He did it publicly. He did it with great sorrow. He did it specifically. And he did it with some kind of penance where he took the silver and he threw it back into the temple. He threw it back at the feet of those, these leaders. That looks pretty close to repentance, but it wasn't. Judas went out and hung himself. David, however, or excuse me, Peter had a very different experience. He had sinned. He had sinned grievously. But his sin and his brokenness was because he had offended the Lord whom he loved. He was distraught over his own failure before God whom he wanted to honor. And he believed the promises and turned to him and went to him for grace. And so there is a kind of sorrow and a kind of repentance that isn't what David is talking about here. And so we need to ask ourselves when we come before God and we confess our sin and we're sorrowful, you need to ask yourself this, I need to, we need to, why am I sorry? What is it that's grieving me? What is it particularly that is a burden on my heart? Is it that I have offended God? Is it that I have disobeyed the one who has shown me love? Is it the one that I have dishonored him who has shown me such mercy and compassion? Or is it something else? Is it something else? So you need to ask yourself that. We need to ask ourselves, why am I sorry? When it's true repentance, we're sorry because of the sin against God. And we want cleansing from the sin. The results of it, the consequences, we fully accept. Whatever you, whatever you want to bring, Lord. But what I want you to do, no matter what you might bring, is to cleanse me from the pollution inside. And so that's what he prays. Purify me with hyssop. And one of the key parts of this restoration is this. There is a desire to be restored to a clear conscience. A clear conscience. He says at the beginning of verse 7, Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. He says in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Again, he wanted to be inwardly clean. Hyssop was a plant, if you're wondering, used to sprinkle water in the case of the cleansing of leprosy. Or if someone came in contact with a dead man, it made them ritually unclean. Sometimes that water was mixed with blood of a bird sacrificed. You can read about that in Leviticus. Hyssop was also a plant used to put the blood on the doorpost when Israel was being delivered out of Egypt in the Passover. Here he says, using that imagery and that symbolism, purify me with hyssop. He's not saying throw water on me or throw blood on me with the plant, but he is saying this, make me to know the reality symbolized in the ritual, and that is of cleansing, of cleansing, the atoning and cleansing symbolism of the water and of the blood. Make me to know it inwardly in my conscience, where I have been polluted with inward defilement of my soul. Bring me cleanliness. As the water sprinkled from the hyssop purified the home or the person it touches, so he wanted that to be the reality of his soul. As blood sprinkled with hyssop marked atonement for sin, he wanted to know that atoning grace for his soul. As sin had made him darkened with the stain of guilt, the repentant wants to be made, as he says, whiter than snow. Whiter than snow. The end of verse 7. Wash me and I will be whiter than than snow. Sin has left a stain. We sing that. But Jesus has paid it all. It's interesting, this language is used in Isaiah. Mention this briefly. In Isaiah chapter 1, 
can see here the same character of God. Now, Isaiah was written much after David. But he uses the same language because it is the same reality. This is, of course, here in the language of God calling his people to this kind of repentance. He says, after saying, I reject all of your empty sacrifices to me, verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the orphan, or reprove the... Reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you rebel and refuse, you will be devoured by the sword. You can come in repentance and know this cleaning and washing and covering grace of God. But it comes when you're ready to turn, when you're ready to seek that kind of changing mercy and grace of God, that cleansing. You know, David prayed this in confidence of the old covenant, but even more, we as believers have the reality of our sin being finally atoned for in Christ. Let me remind you of these words of which you're familiar He said in verse 10 of Hebrews, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, not the very form, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise they they would have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sin. But there, there was the reminder, and there was the reminder of sin. There was the reminder, too, that God had provided them to take away sin, but they were never adequate of themselves. We'll mention that at the end. There is an adequacy, there is a fullness of forgiveness that a new covenant believer uniquely knows. As a matter of fact, he says this, that the whole tabernacle and all of the things that went on there were but a symbol for the present time, Hebrews 9, 9. And he says, accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Because the time of reformation had not yet come, but when Christ appeared as high priest of good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made of hands, that is to say, not of this creation, not through the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So we don't pray, purify me with hyssop. We do pray, Purify me and make me clean again based on that sacrifice of Christ. Him who has entered into your presence for me. Him who has shed his own blood for me. He who has offered the final sacrifice for sin. Cleanse me and clean me and purify me inside through this work of Christ. Notice this as well. He says, create in me a clean heart. Create in me a clean heart. The heart, as you're familiar, is the source out of which all of the issues of life flow. That's Proverbs 4.23. It includes our thoughts, our affections, our desires, our intentions. It is out of the heart that brings forth the springs of righteousness or brings forth the reality of corruption. And what David is here saying and the repentant feels is that your corruption goes down to the depth of your being. And you feel the reality of your corruption as deeply as David did. There's an overwhelming sense of our helplessness to be the agent of cleansing. Do you see? When we feel the burden of our sin and have the conviction that David has here and every repentant sinner has ever, there is this reality that if left in that state... There's nothing we could do. What we need is God to act sovereignly as God. Now, in one sense, what is David praying for here? Create in me a clean heart. Let me make this note. In one sense, the regenerate person has a new heart. We have a new heart. Paul said to the regenerate in 2 Corinthians 5, Old things have passed away, new things have come. Behold, we are a new creation. In Ephesians, he says we are a new man, a new person. 
And the reality of regeneration was true for both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant saints. In the Old Covenant, it was referred to as circumcision of the heart, Deuteronomy 36. That same language is even used by Paul in Romans 2.29, circumcision of the heart, referring to regeneration. So David had a new heart in that sense, but he also felt that corruption was present as well, and it ran deep. And whether one be in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the regenerate person is still very aware of the corruption that remains inside. That's what David was getting at in verse 5 when he said, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin my mother conceived me. He's saying my sin goes so much further than this act. It's so much intertwined with who I am as a person. My sin runs deep. Paul said the same things in Romans seven eighteen. He said, I know that no good thing dwells within me that is within my flesh. He said later, I see the principle of sin is still within me and the Even the regenerate heart, especially and only the regenerate heart, because it has experienced life, is aware as well that within them there is a depth of sin of which we need the sovereign grace of God to cleanse us. So David isn't praying here for the saving experience of regeneration, but he is giving evidence of the reality that the remaining corruption in the human heart in the flesh is of such a nature that even the regenerate person feels his or her helplessness to bring about the renewed experience of spiritual cleansing in the heart once sin's corrupting influence has been let into the inner life. Once sin's corrupting influence has been allowed to wield its power in the heart, the awakened sinner knows that they have no ability of their own to change it. And so David uses the word here, create, create. It speaks of initiate something new or bring something into existence. It's the same term in the Hebrew that's used to speak of God's act of creation in Genesis 1. It's the same too in Isaiah 65, 17 to speak of God's act of making the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. In fact, one Lexicon noted this, that this word used in its basic form is only ever employed of God's activity and is thus a purely theological term. He uses a very specific term here. For those who care, it's called barah. It is to say that this is what God does as a sovereign act of who he is as God. He's saying, I need you to create something in me that I cannot bring about on my own. It's reflective of Paul's words in Romans 4, 17, speaking of the faith of Abraham and offering up Isaac. He says that it's God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. And so we know in this feeling of the burden of sin that only God can make clean what we have made unclean. Only God can make clean What we have made unclean. No human power, no human effort, no human wisdom can rid you of the stain and of the corruption of sin on your own. No amount of penance, no amount of works, no amount of rosaries, no amount of good deeds, no amount of anything can ever change this reality. It plagues us. And we know that if it's going to be changed, God has to bring this about. God has to restore us. It has to be a sovereign act of God. But the good news is, is that God is willing to do that. Some of those speaking to a leper in uh, Luke 5, you remember Jesus in his gospel was going around healing and a leper came up to him and says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Do you remember Jesus' words? I'm willing. I'm willing. We read that, I think all of us do, in the gospels and we find such precious truth. He is willing to make us clean. He's willing. Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Another thing about restoration is that, that we long for the repentant heart is to be long to restore, be restored to intimate fellowship. Intimate fellowship. Look at what else he says. Verse 8 to 9. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you've broken 
rejoice. He says in verse 12, Hey, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. This is the language of fellowship. At a happier time in Psalm 1611, he would say this, In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. But he couldn't say that here because he's feeling the weight of his sin. And so instead of in your right hand are pleasures forevermore, he says in verse 8, let the bones which you have broken rejoice. That fellowship had been forfeited. David knew what it was like. And the believer knows what it's like to rejoice in the presence of God and to have that peaceful fellowship. That delight of walking in the way with God of having intimacy with him, of having a relationship with him, his nearness, his favor. In fact, this actually brings up an important evidence of our knowing him. Because it's only the one who has known this joy, these times of intimate fellowship, that can feel the great burden of its loss. If sin doesn't bring any loss of fellowship, any misery or to your heart because of a lack of fellowship with God, then you would ask yourself, have I ever had fellowship with God? As a matter of fact, let's take that even a step further and say that the depth of joy you've ever had in intimacy with God in Christ is going to be commensurate with the measure of your misery over sin. That's why, for Jesus, this was infinitely greater when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He ever knew perfect, glorious fellowship with the Father. When it was lost, he felt it more deeply than anybody could have ever felt it as a human being. Because he had it so deeply. David knew that fellowship. David knew, again, what it was like to walk with him along the way, to long for the worship, to be near to God. And have intimate fellowship. And that's why when his sin had brought a, a break in that fellowship, he felt it deeply and he wanted anything to have it back once more. To regain it. And he knew that God must bring that about. So again, notice that he's not praying to be restored to salvation, but to the joy of salvation. To the joy of the sweet consolations of God's saving mercies in the heart. Sin breaks fellowship with God. It cuts us off from the nearness of his presence and that relational fellowship that comes through obedient faith. That's how we know the fellowship of God. Obedient faith. You cannot have sin and spiritual joy as a believer. They cancel each other out. And we pursue that joy and we keep his commandments. We read this last week. Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Why did Jesus as the God man have joy? Because he perfectly obeyed the father's commandments. How do we have joy? By we walk in yielded and submitted faith to the Lord. We walk by the spirit. We walk by the spirit. And we can maintain that fellowship with him. He says the same thing in 1 John. We won't turn there for time's sake. But 3 through 7, the very heart of what John the Apostle was seeking to produce was the joy of fellowship with the Father and the Son as he wrote to this church. He says, I'm writing you so that purpose statement there, you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. How do we have this fellowship? When we walk in the light and not in the darkness. Then we have fellowship. Then the blood of Jesus cleanses us. So the joy he desires is the joy of assurance of his sin pardon, the joy of a restored fellowship. It's what Peter lost and regained when the Lord restored him. So we want restoration to fellowship. There's a third. When we long in repentance, there is a longing for restoration as well to righteous motives, to be restored to righteous motives. He says at the end of verse 10, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Verse 12, sustain me with a willing spirit. This again expresses the repentance sense of their own weakness 
and desire to be at a place of spiritual stability where the paths of righteousness are the natural direction of our steps. It is the Spirit who upholds the inner power of the believer. It is to Him we look for renewed strength. This is a longing to know the fullness of a heart that pursues holiness. Uh, Listen to one old writer, J.C. Ryle. He says this, Holiness is the habit of being one mind with God. According as we have as we find his mind described in Scripture, it is the habit of agreeing in God's judgment, hating what he hates, loving what he loves, and measuring everything in this world by the standard of his word. Listen to this a little bit later. A holy man will follow after purity of heart. He will dread all filthiness and uncleanness of spirit and seek to avoid all things that might draw him into it. He knows his own heart is like tinder and will diligently keep clear of the sparks of temptation. Who shall dare to talk of strength when even David can fall? And so the sinner that is repentant does not merely want immediate relief, but longs not merely for a moment of restoration, but longs to be brought back again into a life and heart and mind and affectionate walk with God that is sustained in righteous obedience. It's not to be forgiven and have restoration so we can feel a little bit better and go back and commit the same sin again. The longing of the heart when we're repentant is to say, I want forgiveness, I want cleansing, and I want to never do that again. That's at least the desire. I want to not sin again. I want to walk in righteousness. I want to not walk foolishly, not dishonor you, not disobey you. I want to avoid that sin. That's the repentant part. Is that after I've confessed it, and after I've known the Lord's forgiveness, and after I've experienced some measure of restoration that I seek and pursue holiness and to guard my heart all the more so I won't lose what is so precious. Four, this restoration is to be restored to the empowerment of ministry. Look at verse 11. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Now David wasn't concerned here about losing his salvation, but about losing the power of the Spirit that enabled him to fulfill his role as king. The Holy Spirit was the source, as I already mentioned, of regeneration in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant saints. However, the ministry and intimacy of the Holy Spirit in the two covenants had different character, different nuances. Within the Old Covenant, the Spirit's presence was with the nation through the tabernacle. He came and His presence abided in a unique way in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. Later, that would be in the temple, Solomon's temple. Interestingly, that never happened again after Solomon's temple was destroyed during the exile. But during the tabernacle, the establishment of it under Moses, and then in the temple when it was built under Solomon, two times God made his presence known. That was the unique place of God's presence for the Old Testament saints. In addition to that, the Spirit empowered God's people and sometimes even unbelievers to fulfill different tasks. Skill in building the tabernacle, ability to give prophecy, which, by the way, was given even to Balaam, if you'll remember. To have strength to judge and deliver God's people. All of the judges had the Spirit come upon them powerfully, and they judged Israel, Solomon, or Solomon, uh, Samson, Gideon, and others. He judged his people. And the Spirit came uniquely on the king of Judah, the one who would fulfill his role as monarch, as it were, of God's people. That's sometimes called, if you want a fancy word, a theocratic anointing. This is important to note because within the new covenant, after the appearing and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the incarnate son, who had the spirit without measure, believers now experience the spirit in an even greater way. The Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, Romans 8, 9. The Spirit in Christ, who now through the resurrection Christ, is the Spirit who indwells believers. So that Paul could tell the Colossians, this is the mystery. Christ in you, 
So the new covenant believer is united to Christ by the Spirit, is indwelled by the Spirit, is sealed by the Spirit for the day of redemption. And in fact, the presence of the Spirit through the eternal life he gives, the life in Christ, is a mark of salvation. So if you're a believer, the Spirit could never be taken from you. As a matter of fact, Paul says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ is none of his. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ in you, if you don't have the Holy Spirit in you, then you're not a Christian. The presence of the Spirit is manifest not in external shows of power, but the internal realities. How do you know if you have the Spirit of God? As a new covenant believer, the reality of Christ's presence through the Spirit is through the reality of a faith that trusts Him, a heart moved to obey Him out of love, a heart of repentance. A love for Christ, a longing for holiness, and a love for the word and the people of God. What David is saying is not, don't make my salvation go away. He's not saying what a new covenant believer might look back and think. That he's saying that somehow I can lose that indwelling or sealing ministry of the spirit. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying here is don't take away this theocratic anointing, this empowerment and enablement of the Spirit to fulfill his role as king of Israel. He's asking for this not to be removed from him as it was from his predecessor Saul in 1 Samuel 16 when he had sinned and disobeyed the Lord. God took the Spirit, the Spirit departed, he said, and he sent on him an evil spirit to torment him. David knew that. David was the next in line after Saul. David was aware of what happened. David was in Saul's court. David spent half his life, or a large portion of his life, being persecuted by Saul. He's saying, God, don't let my sin bring that consequence of your abandonment of me, of all spiritual ability and power to fulfill my role as the king of Israel. Now, so we as New Covenant believers don't fear losing the Spirit in that sense, but we can do this, and, and here's, the, here's the parallel way. We can forfeit being filled with the Spirit, and therefore forfeit the power and the joy of ministry and service, and in that sense, we can say, God, don't let this sin remove from me your enabling power for ministry. Restore me. Bring me back to a place of knowing that presence of the Spirit as I serve and as I live for Christ among the people of God. That's what he's saying. Fourthly, there is then for the truly repentant heart this kind of comprehensive restoration, but also that seeks to know true worship and service, sincere worship and service. This is verses 13 through 17. Sin brings a loss of worship, a loss of delight and service, a loss of spiritual power and ministry. Hidden sin, unconfessed and sin and a lack of repentance produces worship and service that is empty and hollow. Empty and hollow. Void of any delight, devoid of any power, devoid of any presence of God in it. And so the believer wants to be restored from this back to a place of sincere worship. Note in these verses, as we look at them, true repentance has an element of ministry to it, a renewed desire to serve others, to bring them into the riches of God's salvation, to see God exalted in their hearts as well. So restored as a witness to God's grace. Look what he says in verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will be converted to you. Restore me, O God, and I'll be an agent of the message of grace. I'll speak as one who has tasted grace and can ensure others of the reality of your forgiveness. I'll speak not merely of grace as a doctrinal point, but as one who has experienced it in my own life. Or Matt Spurgeon wisely notes this. He says, Assuredly, none instructs others so well as those who have been experimentally taught of God themselves. Reclaimed poachers make the best gamekeepers. The pardoned sinner's matter will be good, for he has been taught in the school of experience. And his manner will be telling, for he will speak sympathetically as one who has felt what he declares. There's a kind of sympathy that one sinner can have to a fellow sinner, because we know our own sin. We know the own grace that we've experienced. 
Paul reflects that in Galatians 6. You go to a, a brother caught in a trespass. Look to yourself, knowing that you, you could fall as well. And a believer who knows his own heart knows that reality. And so there is a kind of compassion and sympathy that we can have toward others because we've experienced it. And that's, that's part of what David is reflecting is, I know your grace, O oh God. I will be a better instrument to be able to teach others about it who are not yet brought into your favor. You know, there's really a sense here in which this is reflected in Paul's words. Don't turn there. But in 1 Timothy, when he says this, and I'll just jump to the main point of it. He says it's a trust in verse 15. He says it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. In other words, Paul is in, in essence reflecting that. He's saying, look, I of all sinners know that I should not be one who has received mercy. I persecuted the church of God. I was a murderer. I was a blasphemer. I hated the work of Christ. I hated the message of Christ. And I hated the people of Christ. I sought to destroy them. And God showed me mercy. I have experienced that mercy. I know that transforming grace. I know what it means to be turned from darkness to light. And I know what it means to have a guilt that is unbearable, to know then to be turned to a grace that is praiseworthy. And so there's a, there's a sense there as well as where David is saying, I can be forgiven. Let me teach you about God's mercy. As Paul could say, I was shown mercy. You can be shown mercy. Let no sinner ever say that they are beyond the mercy of God. I know you've heard people say that. I have. Oh, I'm just too great of a sinner. God would never forgive me. I've done too much. And that's baloney on two points. One is it denies God's word. First of all, you're calling God a liar then. And you're saying you know better, better about the heart of God than God knows about his heart. Secondly, really what's behind that is I don't really want to give up my sin. I don't really, because if I know that I want God's mercy, it means that I'm turning from sin. I don't think I'm really ready for that. So I'll just kind of convince myself of these humble motives, which are in fact the epitome of pride in calling God a liar. But that's not the repentant heart. The repentant heart says, I know that I've sinned and I've received mercy. Let me tell you about God's mercy too. Restored to a heart of expression of God's glory. In verses 14 through 15, deliver me from blood guiltiness. My tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips that my mouth may praise you. Again, this is one who has tasted grace. Blood guiltiness could refer either to the sentence of death that David deserved or to having the blood of Uriah on his hands. Could refer to either one of those. In either case, what he's saying is that he knew the depth of his sin that God had delivered him from. Notice interestingly here that he says this. He says that I'll declare your praise, but he speaks that he will declare God's righteousness. Verse 14, I will sing joyfully of your righteousness. That's an amazing statement. God longs, essentially what he's saying is he longs for God to show his own faithfulness and commitment to his covenant and the promise of redemption. Again, for the Old Testament saint, this meant the covenant as it was pictured and symbolized in the sacrifices, in the temple, in the priesthood. But he knew that that never was a, a full satisfaction. That's why he said, you don't delight in sacrifice. What do you mean? God commanded it. But he's saying, you don't delight in that. You don't delight in burnt offerings, verse 16. You're not pleased with that. The old covenant saint was never under some guise to think that was the final answer for their sin. We don't need a Messiah. No, he knew that wasn't it. It was those sacrifices, however, attended with a broken heart of faith and trust in the promises of God that made it mean anything. The blood of the sacrifice of the animal, animal never offered final atonement. It could never fulfill God's requirement of righteousness. 
And yet here he says, I'll declare your righteousness. Your righteousness that says, yet I will forgive the one who comes to me. And believes my promise. And believes my promise. The righteousness here is of God upholding his word. Upholding his promise. The glory of the new covenant is that it answers the other part of that question. Not only how will God uphold his promise, but how will God uphold his justice in the light of human sin if a blood of bulls and goats could never do anything? And the marvel of what this word then is that apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest. It's been manifest in the satisfaction that Christ rendered in his blood to demonstrate the righteousness of God. And that's the marvel of the gospel is that God upheld his righteousness, his righteous and just wrath against sin by giving his son who would perfectly obey him and then in a perfect act of obedience offer himself up in trust to the father and in obedience to the father to bear the just consequences for sin so that, as Paul said, God could be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's not a personal righteousness, it's an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness that is truly counted to us because of Christ. And it's the righteousness of God that is glorified because he upheld both his holiness and his promise. He upheld his law and he upheld his grace in the person of Christ. And David says, I will sing of your righteousness. He didn't have the fullness of that in Christ, but he did know this. He did know that God promised by covenant to forgive the repentant and that God would honor that word. And he longed to be restored to true worship. He says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken spirit and contrite heart. You will not despise. A contrite heart honors God because it honors his righteousness of his standard. A contrite heart honors God before him because it honors the promise of his grace. And then he says, you'll accept it. Lastly, and I'll just have to mention this, not really talk about it, but note that there is a desire for a holy people. There's a desire, a longing that not only that our repentance would be ours alone, but that it would be an influence for the blessing of God's people. I'll just mention this. By your favor, do good to Zion, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you'll delight, delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and so forth. David knew that his actions affected the whole nation. And his desire was not merely for him to be restored, but for the whole nation to know that restoration. For the whole nation to be repentant. Why? Because as they walked with God in that way, they would know his favor and his blessing. And we reflect that even in the church. We reflect that in the Lord's Supper. We know that a little leaven leavens the whole bread. We want to deal with sin. In our own lives, we want to deal with sin as a church. That's the whole process of church discipline. But we want everybody to walk in holiness. We say, not only make me a holy person, but God, make us a holy people. So that we might know your favor and and use me in declaring your praise and me in interacting with your people to be an instrument and influence for good and of your mercy as David himself longed for. So this is, this is what it looks like to be repentant. This is what it looks like to be repentant. To understand God's character and his covenant. To own our sin fully and completely before God except its consequences. To be restored comprehensively to God from the inside out. To be restored to ministry and to long for the holiness of God's people. For his honor and for his glory. So I hope that that gives you something to meditate on and to think about as you consider your own life and as you come to the word. Trusting in his grace. Let me pray. We won't have a closing hymn, so the prayer uh, will be our benediction. Father, we thank you for the promise of grace. We thank you that you forgive sinners. You are a God full of mercy and compassion and grace. There is no sin so great that is beyond the reach of your mercy. There is no life so corrupted and far gone that if your spirit prompts a turning back to you that it is beyond restoration and forgiveness. 
The lowest sinner and the lowest depths and corruptions of sin need but look up to you, O Christ, and can know what it means to be made clean and forgiven and restored. Help us in our sin never to hide from you, but to run to you. Help us in our sin never to try to lessen or cover it up, but to fully own it so that we might know the full forgiveness of your grace. Make us a people who long in that restoration to walk in holiness, to be useful to you, and to be jealous to maintain the joy of fellowship. And make us instruments who long for that for all of God's people. And so that as we have experienced grace, we speak of that grace freely to others. And Lord, for any in here again who don't know you, we ask that they would know this grace. What true repentance looks like, what true forgiveness is. The rest of us, we thank you for your mercy in the name of Jesus.